Super Bowl time is coming up. I don't even follow football, uh, but having played organized sports a little bit, there's something exciting about watching two teams battle it out and watching one team dig down deep to give it all they got. And then to see that one team simply outplay the other and get the win. You know, the Christian life is spoken of as a battle. But the key to winning it does not involve digging down deep within ourselves. I know that's a popular notion today. You dig down deep within yourselves to win whatever battle you're going through. But that actually does not apply to the Christian life at all. In fact, doing so spells sure defeat, failure. The question then is, what brings us victory? Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 14. And if you're using one of those black Bibles in front of you, it's found on page 979. 979. Our passage this morning shows us that the path to sure victory in the spiritual battle of the Christian faith is trusting not in yourselves, but in God. Paul the Apostle, he wrote this letter in the early 60s, 60s AD, wanting to root Christians in the grace of God and for every aspect of their life. He said basically there's grace for every single aspect of your life. And our passage today is is part of what it looks like to fight in this grace of God. Look there, verse 10. I'll go ahead and read that section. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The main point from today's passage... If you, Christian, are to make it in this fight, stand fast in the strength of God's might. If you, Christian, are to make it in this fight, stand fast in the strength of God's might. The fact that the Christian life is a battle is very clear in this passage, and it's clear from the beginning of the passage. This brings us to point number one. Point number one, which is the call to battle. This is verses 10 and 11, the call to battle. what ought to mark our lives as Christians is battling. Okay, so if you are discouraged, feeling like you are in a battle, that actually is, to some degree, very normal. And it's telling here that Paul closes out the letter, right? This is the conclusion. He's closing out his letter, saying, Be strong, Christians. Put on the armor of God. I mean, imagine the nominal Christian, right? The Christian just in name. Imagine the nominal Christian who simply believes uh, to himself to be a Christian, and now all of a sudden they find themselves with the, the, this Ephesian church hearing this letter written by Paul, where Paul's saying, be strong, put on the armor of God. Right? All the nominal Christians all of a sudden are thinking like, whoa, what did I get myself into? He's telling me to arm myself with the armor of God, to be strong? You can't help but think that the 
average uh, nominal Christian, the Christian by name, would think that they are in the wrong place. Paul here, he's like a general urgently calling his troops on the battlefield to maintain the mindset of a soldier and to stand fast. You know, if you're honest with yourself, many of us expect our lives to be, as cliche as it sounds, you expect your lives to be like it were lived as if we were on a vacation cruise line. That's the Christian life, where we can be waited on hand and foot, where every luxury is at our fingertips and where you are free to live in excess. Excess entertainment, excess food. And with that consumeristic and materialistic mindset, some Christians come to this passage and then they think, well, what is weird is that, you know, that, that average Christian might get a little pumped up thinking, yeah, I got to go to battle. But then they come to realize that they are fighting the wrong enemy. With misinformation, we assign discomfort and inconvenience to be the greatest enemy. Right? The average Christian who thinks, uh, the average nominal Christian who thinks that they ought to live lives like it were lived on a cruise line, they assign discomfort and inconvenience the title of greatest enemy. But God, though, says that is the wrong enemy. See, if Christians are fighting the wrong enemy, you can just imagine how many casualties of war they are going to suffer. The reality is that Christians are engaged in a spiritual warfare where Satan is enemy number one. And he desires nothing more than to drag us down to the depths of hell where he knows he will be. And while Satan is busy stockpiling his weapons of warfare, we, I mean imagine that, right? If we have, this, if we have assigned the greatest enemy to something else, something that isn't Satan and his, his uh, foes, or sorry, Satan and his allies, right? We're, we're stuck in the middle of his dark and gloomy battlefield trying to maintain something, trying to fight for something, namely comfort and convenience. So that's what we give ourselves to. Imagine that. That's like our greatest enemy, discomfort and convenience. And so therefore we try and carve out our little grass patch and maintain it in the middle of Satan's battlefield. This is doomsday for that Christian. Not only that though. I mean imagine if you were fighting alongside that brother or sister. Who gives himself or herself to fighting the wrong enemy. The Bible says so clearly that Satan is the wrong enemy. But that Christian says no, 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 no. That's not the wrong. That's not the enemy. This over here is the enemy. And all of a sudden all of the troops are in danger be mauled over. Thankfully, Paul in our passage, he throws up the mugshot of the real enemy and he puts Satan front and center. Look there at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So who are we fighting? None but the devil. It is him we stand against. It is him and then all of those under his rule. Look there, verse 12. We see all of the other villains. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So this is not man here that we wrestle against. But it is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is the spiritual forces that operate in the heavenly places, in the unseen world, which obviously involves the earth. So these are the spiritual realities that in fact exist in the unseen world. But of course, these spiritual realities, they also operate in the seen world too. I mean, they make their presence known here in the seen world. So in Ephesus, right, this is the Ephesian church that he's writing to, in Ephesus, there, the practice of the occult or the supernatural, trying to tap into that, uh, was pretty commonplace. So in Acts chapter 19, it tells of these stories of demon possessions in Ephesus. And given the practice of the occult, the supernatural, Ephesians 1.19 then is put in context. You go over and turn over to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19. Here Paul is checking the spiritual forces. Reminding the Christians of who is over them and who stands stronger than them. 
It says that the God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are referring to spiritual realities. This is the supremacy of Christ that Paul uplifts in front of this Ephesian church. God raised Jesus and seated him in a place of greater authority and greater sovereignty than, and greater power than any spiritual authority could ever wield. Those spiritual authorities that are under Jesus Christ. It's funny, even the demons know it. You know, in Acts chapter 19, which I mentioned earlier, uh, what happens there is some people who did not believe in Jesus, they, they were Jewish exorcists, you know, they undertake the task of trying to cast out demons from these people. And uh, what happens is they say, I adjure you, evil spirit, by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, right? This person does not believe in Jesus. They say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, and then he goes on to try and cast them out. But the evil spirit responds and says, Jesus, I know. It's like he says, wait, hold on one second. You can see, imagine him like going about his business, possessing people, wreaking havoc on the seen world, even though he's an unseen spiritual reality. And then he stops and says, hold on one second. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? So here, even the spiritual realities recognize the name and authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. He is, after all, Lord over all of them. We know that one day, everything will be put underneath his feet. So while we don't know everything God knows about these spiritual forces, we do know that, that these spiritual forces are plainly seen. And behind these spiritual forces stand, stands the devil. So according to the Bible, the devil was, cre- was a created angel who then chose by his own will to rebel against God. And so he earned for himself <clears throat> God's righteous judgment. And in this revolt, other angels revolted with him, according to Isaiah 14 and Revelation 12, 9. And so he is known to be set against God. And we see this a clear example in the New Testament. When Jesus goes into the desert, it was the devil who was tempting him, trying to derail God's plan of sending Jesus to the cross to die on the cross and to spill his blood for the sins of all those who would ever repent and believe. And Satan is right there at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry trying to bring him down. Just as the devil is against God, just as the devil is against Jesus... So he is against God's church, God's people. 1 Peter 5, 8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You can even look in Ephesians chapter 2, which we've looked at earlier. Go ahead and look at verse 1 of chapter 2. We can begin there. It says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's talking about those Christians. Following the course of this world, following the, get this, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says that all of mankind is underneath the power of Satan. And so we can feel the effects of Satan's rebellion, right? His trickery, his schemes, which we're standing against, is felt in everyone and everywhere. And we know this because sin has entered into the world. Satan deceived Eve and Adam. When they sinned, sin and death entered into the world. And now we, as God's created people, where we were designed to live in fellowship with God, now we rebel against Him, doing the very same things. We rebel against God, earning for ourselves just condemnation. And that is due... To the devil and his schemes. Now, we all are at fault too. So the Bible puts the responsibility squarely on our shoulders too. But yet, all of us have gone away. And so, 1 John 5.19 says this. Listen to this. The whole world, there's no exception. The whole world is in the power of the evil one. There's no exceptions there. The whole entire world 2 Corinthians 4 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So his tactics are working. They are going on even amongst this church in ways that we might not be aware of. 
And again, he wants nothing more than to bring us down and for us to be distracted in the battle that he wages. He wants us to see everything else but him as our greatest threat. But in what Paul says here, he changes our outlook, doesn't he? In this passage, we're supposed to stare at the devil's mug and know who we are to go after and to know who is coming after us. Thus, we have Paul's call to stand you guys notice how, how many times this word comes up there? In, uh, starting from verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, when he's talking about wrestling, he really is talking about wrestling. We're supposed to think like this is a hand-to-hand combat type of thing where he's on top of us and we're wrestling against him. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having done X, Y, and Z. Standing is his emphasis here, which is why if we want to make it in this Christian life, we need to stand in the strength of God's might. Now, for Christians who think their greatest enemy is discomfort, the call to stand against the devil is nuts. If we've been exhausting ourselves in order to, once again, tend to our little grass patch, then the only weapon in our hand with which we can battle Satan is a garden spade. Now, can you imagine battling against spiritual forces with a garden spade? I hope you're fearing a little bit. You know, on one hand, we don't want to trump up the devil's power. We know exactly who won on the cross. But do you fear a little bit here? You know that fear, to a certain degree, is the right human response in the face of spiritual warfare? In the Bible, when people encountered the supernatural, like demon possessions, they feared because the evil spirits were stronger than they were. And so that's what happens in Acts chapter 19 when the Jewish exorcist tries to cast out demons. They leave out naked and battered in fear because they can't do anything. Someone can dig down deep all they want to uh, into themselves, but doing so only leads to sure defeat. The good news, friends, is that Paul does not call them to dig down deep within themselves for confidence. Look at verse 10. I mean, what does he say there? It says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is how you go from fear to confidence in a battle of spiritual warfare. This is how you go from fear to confidence. By standing, not in your own strength, but in the strength of God. By standing in a strength that comes from something outside of us. This is clear, even the first two words there, be strong. Uh, this, this verb here is put in the passive in Greek, meaning that it is something, strength is something that's worked into the Christian. So it could be translated, be strengthened. Turn over to 314. Right, uh, the, when something is in the passive, it means that, that something is being worked onto somebody else. You, you are passively standing there. And so, and so something is being worked in you actively. But here something else is being is doing the strengthening. And, and in 314, he already says, right? He already says where the strength is coming for, from. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, before God, right? Before the sovereign one, the one who's over all things, who has authority over all things, and whose power is over all things, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So when he says, be strong in the Lord, it's be strengthened in the power of the Lord that is underneath the Sovereign One, Him who has all power. May He strengthen you as we are to be strong. So here it says that God is the one who supplies all the raw materials for battle. In Him, we have everything we need to go to war. He is the only one who straps us 
with the grace of the gospel, the grace of strength, the grace of his power to fight. If If God is the one who is strong, you know what strips us of all confidence and exposes us in our battle? If God is the one who is strong. What strips us in our battle is questioning God's character and ability. It is questioning God's character and ability. Will he really strengthen me? And can he really strengthen me? Will he really, will he really do it? That speaks of character. Can he really do it? Speaks of ability. So here we're, Satan wants us to question God's character and God's ability. But thank God that we have the rest of Ephesians to tell us all about what he has already done and will do, and the fact that he really can do it in his power. So, 119. Go ahead and turn there. 119. And this is just bringing up one verse. We can speak about so many different verses, but this is just one verse. This verse comes in the middle of a prayer. Actually, we'll go ahead and read uh, from 15. This is a prayer. He says, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now get this. And Paul prays for these believers and for us now, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named forever. Will he really do it? Can he really do it? He has already done it. So what's interesting here is that as Paul, you know, Paul, when he's writing chapter 1, he knows where he's going to go into chapter 6. So when he calls us in chapter 6 to stand in the strength of his might, he's using actually the same exact words that he used in 119. So when he tells Christians to stand in the strength of his might in that power to put it on, he's actually referring to... To this power that has already been worked in Jesus Christ. So you look there again, 19. The the greatness of his power toward us to believe. According to the working of his great might. So when he tells us to stand in some sort of strength and might and power. It's in the same strength and might and power that God wielded to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. Christian... The life you live of faith is not about mustering up eternal, internal strength, but relying on God's strength. This is how you go from fear to confidence, knowing what God has done. And there's all this evidence that God has worked towards us. We have been elected by grace, according to chapter 1. We have been forgiven. We have been redeemed. We have been saved. We have been seated, according to chapter 2. We have been reconciled and redeemed in all of this by the blood of the cross, according to chapter 3. So salvation now is all by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his spilled blood, his work on the cross. So you see all of this, this evidence that God will do what he promises and that he is able. Which is why he says, look, there's nothing left for you guys to do if you're fighting that battle against that sin, but to stand in the strength of God's mind. It should make us wonder what we put our hope in. You know, we talk about sins of idolatry. Most of us at times, even though we are Christians, we struggle with, uh, or we worship our functional idols of security, of comfort, of power. But you realize that when we make these things our functional gods, we always rely on something, some mechanism to get us them to lay hold of them, to claim them. We're relying on some sort of mechanism. We say they are what we need to worship, and this thing is what we need to get there. So if our God is security, we stand in the strength of our job. If our God is power, we 
stand in the strength of my ability to, to control the situation around me. Whether that be my marriage, my children. You could even control weight. You control your circumstances to the degree so much that you, you struggle with uh, something like obsessive compulsive disorder. You can struggle so much with to control the things around you that maybe the only thing in your power to limit is how many calories you take in or how often you go to the gym. If your idol is marriage, if your god is marriage, then you stand in the strength of your ability maybe to be funny if you're seeking a wife or a husband. Maybe you stand in the strength of your outward appearance or your personality. Maybe evidence of that is you might despair because you think you are that weird. We're all standing in the strength of something to get and maintain what we think we need to battle after that thing that we so desperately want. You, you want to help to know what you think your greatest enemy is? <coughs> you can find out by asking, what am I living for? And what is that stake if I don't get it? What am I living for and what is that stake if I don't get it? So then you can go on and ask yourself, well, what weapon am I trusting in to get that thing? What strength are you standing in to get that thing? For some of us, these questions are sobering. It means that we are distracted in our real battle. We've assigned the greatest threat to the wrong enemy, and we have been holding the wrong weapons. Another sobering reality is that this is part of Satan's scheming. This is what he wants us to do. But Paul helpfully sounds the siren, calling Christians to be strong in the Lord. He reminds us who enemy number one is, and then he shows us the stockpile of heavenly weapons and armor for battle. Verses 12 to 20. Here we have the standard issue, weapons of spiritual warfare. This is point number two. If point number one is the call to battle, point number two is the weapons issued. Verses 12 to 20 here, we have the standard issue weapons that God gives for spiritual warfare that Paul takes us to, calls us to take up and to put on as Christians suit themselves up for warfare. Uh, whenever I read this passage, you know, it kind of goes through my mind is, uh, you know, all those... Schwarzenegger movies that I grew up watching where you know he's preparing for battle and he's strapping on his grenades, he's loading his weapons, he's putting on his vests. Or for modern day folks who don't might not know who Schwarzenegger is, you can think of like Tony Stark suiting up in his Iron Man thing where every piece of armor is put in the right place. That's what Paul is doing for us. He wants to make sure every piece of armor, every weapon is placed, loaded. This is the Christian's armor of God. Now, we could spend a whole sermon series. We could spend years on each piece of armor, and some have. So one 17th century English Puritan pastor named William Gurnall, he wrote 1,200 pages on these verses that we're covering today. Actually, less, on 11 verses, verses 10 to 20. 1,200 pages on just that. Uh, Spurgeon thought the world of it. And if you want to read it, I can lend it to you. I have not read it, but I can lend it to you. Closer to our time, the English preacher, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote two volumes on those same 11 verses, 10 to 20. And out of no disrespect to them, we address the issue here today in a handful of minutes. <laughs> the official pieces of armor mentioned are a belt, a breastplate, we got shoes, we got a shield, we got a helmet, and a sword. Those are like the official pieces. And then, and then we got prayer, which we'll speak about a little bit later. The weapons mentioned are pictures. They're pictures of truth, of righteousness, of readiness in the gospel of peace, of faith, of salvation, and the word of God. So he says, look, you're going to go into battle. What you need to be equipped with are these particular things of salvation. And we're going to look very briefly at each one. First, he calls all Christians to fasten on your belt of truth. There's confidence, right? Your belt holds up your pants. In the case of a Roman soldier, the belt is what their girdle could be tucked in as they were going to run towards battle. And it also held up their sword. So this obviously is a key piece. right? So here we are to prepare for battle by girding up truth. Now truth here could refer to moral character. But I think it's better interpreted as the truth of the gospel. 
God's revealed truth, the truth of the gospel. So in the last two instances where the word truth is used, it's in reference actually to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Speaking of of, uh, those whose minds are darkened by Satan, he writes in 419 that the truth is in Jesus. So with God's truth, we understand God, right? We understand ourselves. We understand the world around us. Ephesians 4 says we have been taught in it. And we are to speak it to other people. And so with this call to gird up truth, we are reminded that God's truth alone supports our lives and helps us understand everything around us. Gird up truth, he says. Next, he speaks of a breastplate of righteousness. This breastplate was uh, basically went on the front and the back and supported all of our vital organs. Now, this righteousness could also be speaking of a moral character or ethical actions. Like in Ephesians chapter 4, 24, where God is spoken of to be righteous. It could also be speaking of the Christian's righteous standing as in justification. Where, where uh, God says, look, even though you are a sinner, I'm going to count you right in front of my eyes. Before the judge, he says, look, you are good. You are righteous. Perhaps Paul is referring to both. After all, the two are connected. The right standing, the, the righteousness that God credits to us produces righteous actions in the spirit it's interesting here we don't often think that in your in our battle against spiritual forces that righteousness is an armor we wear to defend ourselves against satan but yet it is righteous standing and righteous actions and so there what we're supposed to do i think is to look out onto the battlefield and look and appreciate and love righteousness you know that Satan desperately wants us to know, to not know this righteousness, but instead to know and to carry over ourselves this ungodly guilt and condemnation and shame. But God says here, no, you stand in righteousness. You stand doing righteous deeds. Third, he turns to the Christian's kicks, his shoes. We got the shoes of readiness and the gospel of peace. Now here again, we have options for interpretation. Readiness can be translated preparation or firmness preparation or firmness so this phrase then readiness in the gospel of peace could mean a couple things it could mean the readiness or the firm footing that the gospel provides so if you believe the gospel you have a firm footing so there the emphasis is hot as how you stand or it could also refer to the fact that the gospel of peace produces the readiness to share the gospel which is what David mentioned earlier as he was praying there. A readiness to share the gospel. Um, what helps us is that Paul draws from the Old Testament here. These, these allusions, they come from the Old Testament. Isaiah 52 verse 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace. You get the guy who is, who is uh, climbing the mountains... He's wearing these like half boot-like structure, uh, this fitting, and he's publishing peace, the gospel of peace. So in this passage, the emphasis is not placed on the feet, but the fact that the gospel of peace is brought and preached, at least in Isaiah 52, uh, verse 7. But this is actually fitting with what Jesus does in, in Ephesians chapter 2.17. If you go ahead and turn there, Ephesians chapter 2.17. It says there that Jesus preaches peace to those who are near and to those who are far. So we see that Jesus himself is preaching this peace, this gospel of peace. And it's not surprising to see here that what Jesus did, he commands his church to do. So that is the shoes of readiness in the gospel of peace. Next we have the shield of faith. This shield of faith extinguishes the fiery arrows. In fact, there is a special emphasis on the shield of faith as we are to take up the shield of faith in all circumstances, it says. And this shield is is not a round shield. This shield would be about uh, four and a half by two and a half. And it was designed actually to to extinguish these arrows dipped in pitch and lit on fire that sought to take us down. And these fiery arrows that Satan shoots at Christians... Our arrow is designed to attack the very things that Christians are to have faith in. It's a shield of faith. 
So, namely, as I mentioned earlier, he's trying to take down the character of God and his work in the gospel. Will he really do it, and can he really do it? So, you know, something, one arrow that he fires at us in the evil day, which really just stands for any time of temptation in this age, any time of temptation, that's when we're supposed to stand in this evil day. So a question here that uh, Satan might throw at you is, is he's going to launch questions such as, you know, does God really love me? All these things are happening in my life. Does God really love me when I go through trials? He gets us to doubt his grace given to us in the cross. So there, if you know that forgiveness has been given, that you in fact have been redeemed through the blood of his cross, as it says that so clearly we have been redeemed, we possess every spiritual blessing, yet we carry around on our backs this ungodly guilt. And so maybe therefore we need to do something to pay for our sins, as if Jesus' blood is not enough. These are the fiery darts meant to bring you down in your pursuit of Jesus Christ. And so we are to pick up the shield of faith. Believe in the truths of God. Next we have the helmet of salvation. <clears throat> this is the helmet that we are to take and wear, it says. Uh, and this salvation is salvation already won. It's salvation going to be given finally at the end time. And you know, without wearing this helmet of salvation... Or by wearing the helmet of salvation, you can imagine all of a sudden our eyes where once we were afraid to look up now with salvation upon us, we see clearly. Where once we were fearful to raise our heads in battle, now donning the helmet of salvation, our heads are lifted up as we enter into the battle that is the Christian faith. Where everyone looking at this battle can see the insignias and the plumes and say, that is Christian salvation. And we advance forward. The last official piece of armor, the armor of God is the sword of the spirit. That is the word of God. This, re this refers to the revealed word of God. Now actually, this is, this is a weapon. And it can be used both in offense and defense. So in defense, we hide the word of God in our hearts that we might not sin against God while we are on the battlefield. And then in offense, we wield the word in the power of the spirit as it is sharper than a double-edged sword, separating and dividing and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, according to Hebrews chapter 4.12. This is the word that gives us birth and the word that gives other people birth in the power of the spirit. And then the last item, which uh, many consider to be a piece of armor as well, is prayer. Without doubt, every move in our battle is to be done with a prayerful attitude. Paul says that we are to be praying at all times. We are to be alert. And we are to persevere in this prayer. Entrusting ourselves to God and calling down His power. Prayer is the grand picture of standing in the strength of God's might, isn't it? As we cry out to Him who is over all for help, for deliverance, for power, for knowledge and understanding. The words of truth. Verse 20, you can look there. You see, verse 19 and 20, you see what Paul is asking them to pray for. Pray for the words of truth. Pray for the attending boldness to speak it as we share the gospel. So in calling us to pray, we are reminded that every Christian is to be an expert at tactical communications, as it were. Assessing the need in the situation and then calling down additional heavenly support. So that right there is the powerful armor of God. God's truth. God's righteousness standing, or righteous standing that can't be taken from us. Righteous living that testifies the power of the gospel that changes us. Also a readiness to share a message of peace with a world at war, and a world at war with God. We got faith, faith to cling to the truths, even in the difficulties of battle. When the enemy appears to be giving us severe blows. And then what helps us see clearly when we're taking on this fire is the helmet of salvation. And then as Christians march forward, we are armed with the weapon of the word of God, able to cut to the heart and give new life. A word about these weapons. These are the spectacularly unspectacular weapons used to fight our battle of spiritual warfare. There's nothing really fancy. This is the standard stuff of Christianity, isn't it? 
And in all these things, we call down help from God, our commander-in-chief. As it says in Exodus 15, verse 3, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. So standing in the strength of God's might looks like going into battle with this armor. This is what it looks like to be strengthened in the Lord and the strength of his might. And you realize here that everything here, in given in the, in the armor of God, is either of God or from God? You realize that? So thinking more about God's grace given to us in salvation and also in the present as we fight, all of the armor is given of God or from God. So when it comes to truth, Ephesians 4.21, again, it says that the truth is in Jesus. When it comes to the breastplate of righteousness, Isaiah 59, 17, in speaking of God's righteousness, says that God himself puts on the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, for shoes for your feet of the gospel of peace, Isaiah 52, 7, has in view God's messenger who crosses the mountains to bring God's peace to God's people. For the helmet, Isaiah 59, 17, once again, also says God puts on the helmet of salvation on his head. And then, of course, the sword of the Spirit reminds us of Isaiah 11, verse 5, where the Spirit of the Lord rests on the Messiah, who will judge the earth with the word of his mouth and destroy the wicked with the breath of his lips. And then, of course, with prayer. We're reminded of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who in his great need cried out in the garden and entrusted himself to his Father in heaven. All these things are part of the armor of God. This is God's armor that he wears himself and that he gives to us so that we might stand against the devil and all of his schemes. How is that for confidence? There's no fear here. There's fear if we rely on ourselves. There is no fear if we rely on God, if we stand firm in the Lord. That's exactly why Paul is writing to them. Stand firm in the grace of God, he says. Grace given to us in election from eternity past, which secures us salvation in the present, and then the grace that comes to our need in eternity future. God in His grace reconciles sinners to Himself and to each other. And then, of course, He strengthens us so that we would give no opportunity for the devil. If we have every spiritual blessing in Christ, and this comes to us by God's grace, that means there is nothing we can do in this spiritual battle but to be strengthened in the Lord and stand in the strength of His might. This is sure victory. If you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, let me ask you a question. What strength will you fight in? What strength will you fight in in the midst of these spiritual battles that are not ultimately against man, but are against spiritual powers? It is very much a legitimate question for you to ask, how will I stand against the devil's schemes? It is also a legitimate question to ask, how will I stand when the Lord, who is over those things, over the devil, over these spiritual powers, stands against you? The Bible says that people are either with God or against God. There's only one way to stand when God stands against you. That is to stand in the righteousness that God himself provides. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. That this grace can be yours. Grace from eternity past. Grace into eternity future. Grace for the present. For all those who repent of their sins and believe on this great and loving God. Let me remind you, even though we were dead in sins and transgressions, this is what God does for sinners. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, here's the character of God, friends, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. Towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand. 
that we should walk in that. Friends, if you know yourself not to be a Christian, this passage here calls you to repent and believe and to know secure salvation in the blood of Jesus Christ alone. That is what will enable you to stand against the spiritual powers and that is what will enable you to stand when the Lord God calls you to account for your actions and rebellion against Him. As we finish up here, there is one more crucial thing to the Christian's fight. One more crucial thing to the Christian's fight. That is the camaraderie of Christians. One thing that threatens Christians is a sinful individualism that says, I'm going to go at this on my own. But Christians are not to think this way, nor are they encouraged to think this way. Paul expects these Christians to be involved in his fight of faith. As if it is their fight of faith. So that's why he says there, pray for me and for all of the saints. Right? He expects others to be involved in his fight of faith as if it is their fight of faith. And so they are, these Christians, right, are invited into the situation room to be their eyes, his eyes and his ears. They get, you get the idea here that they are to be crowded around the screen to see exactly how his battle unfolds. Watching, waiting, praying with concern, with trust, and with joyful expectation. So we have every reason to think that they actually care, these Ephesian Christians. He speaks as if they really want to be encouraged there. As he says, look, I'm going to send you my friend Tychicus, my trusted servant. He's going to tell us, he's going to tell you how I'm doing and how everything else is going on. Acts chapter 20 tells a moving story about how how Paul was parting with these elders of Ephesus as he was going to continue on to to his mission. And listen to what Acts 20 verses 36-38 says. Listen to what happened when he says their goodbyes. And when he had said all these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. We know that this is the way that he felt towards them. This is not only why he started churches, but it's why he returned to so many of them. Why he wrote to so many of them as well. And even wrote to those he didn't know. So it makes sense that Paul would want to encourage them in the Lord there in verses 21 and 22. This is a lesson for us today. Especially if you know yourself not to be really caring too much about the the battles that your neighbors here in this church, that the fellow members of this church go through. The Christian is designed to engage in spiritual warfare, partnered with his or her earthly assembly, earthly embassy of the heavenly kingdom. There is the king overall, then there is the earthly, there are his earthly assemblies that possess heavenly authority, and then there are his citizens attached to these assemblies and embassies. So a question for you is, are you engaged in spiritual warfare? Uh, And if you are, how are you partnered with the local church? If you want to learn more about this local church and what we stand for, we're going to have our membership class at the end of February. And there we're going to talk about what we believe and how that affects how we should live with one another. Also, we're going to talk about making a case for church membership. So if you are not a member of this church, but yet you're interested in checking this church out and wanting to know more about who we are, I encourage you guys to attend that Membership Matters class at the end of February. We're going to put out more announcements of that as the time gets closer. So Christian, as we conclude, if you want to stand in this battle, Paul says, you stand in the strength of God's might. We already know that he can do it. And we already know that he will do it. And we see that so clearly on the cross of Jesus Christ as he bore the wrath that sinners deserved so that all those who would repent and believe would have salvation and forgiveness and redemption and adoption into his family, justification and right standing and then an inheritance in the age to come, a down payment of the Spirit as we wait to acquire possession of the great inheritance, all of these things can be yours according to God's grace. We know that He has done it, that He will deliver, and indeed He is faithful to do this. Of course, this is entirely fitting for the book of Ephesians. 
as God speaks about God's eter- His grace from eternity past, God's grace into eternity future, and then of course God's grace for the present. And as our passage today shows, God's grace for us as we fight and stand in that evil day of temptation. May we stand in the midst of temptation empowered by God's grace. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for being a powerful God. We know from the passage that we read earlier in Genesis chapter 4 that sin is crouching at our door, but we must overcome it. Lord Jesus, we recognize that we cannot do this in our own strength. But the one who would come, the one in fact who did come, is you. You were the one to destroy Satan and sin and the effects of sin on the cross. As you bore our punishment for sin. And then as you rose from the dead, you showed that death and the devil had no power over you. And no power over anyone who trusts in you. And so, Lord, we praise you for being a powerful God. We praise you for the strength of your might. Our Father in heaven, Lord, what might did you display as you raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places where Christ rightly deserves to be seated far above every power, whether earthly or spiritual, far above every authority. And now, Lord, we recognize that you deserve all praise and glory. Lord Jesus, we recognize as you are the strong God that we are to strong stand in your strength. Help us to do that with a humility that doesn't rely on our own power, but that turns to something outside of us, that turns to your strength and your grace, as everything we need for this spiritual battle is of you and from you. Father, we pray that you would equip us with the gospel, just as Paul prayed for. We pray, Lord, that you would give us words to speak and boldness to speak it, as Satan would love nothing more than to shut us up. Father, we pray that you would empower us by your Spirit and open our mouths so the gospel would be heralded, not only here in this place, but across the world. In your name we pray. Amen.